Well, good morning. You can take your Bible and turn to Revelation chapter 2. We are in a series through these seven letters from Jesus that he dictated to the Apostle John as recorded in Genesis chapters 2 and 3. And uh, we are going to be focusing this morning on just one phrase uh, that's repeated in each of these letters. And now just to get some context here to remind us, we're calling this series Letters from Jesus because these were messages that Jesus wanted to get to these seven churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And repeated seven times, that is once in each letter, is this phrase, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, which tells us that we ought to read these letters not as dusty artifacts in a museum somewhere. Rather, we are to read these letters as urgent dispatches from our commander for every church in every age. Let everyone who has ears, that's all of us here today, listen because this is the Spirit speaking to us, the churches, here in the 21st century. And when we begin this series, I had in mind that I might take one sermon per message, that is per uh, letter to the church, but I realize there's so much in here, it's so rich, uh, that in order for us to get the, as full a possible impact that we can, uh, sometimes I'll have to drill down into a few of the details here. You know, so when we do our preaching here uh, at church, sometimes we take an extended text of scripture and I unfold the meaning for that, uh, of that uh, text to you, and other times uh, we have to focus on a phrase or even sometimes a word just to unpack uh, the richness of the word. And what I want to focus on this morning is that phrase that gets repeated seven times, once in each letter, you find the first occurrence in verse 7 of chapter 2, where Jesus says, to the one who conquers. The one who conquers. Now, the word that's uh, translated, uh, just one word in, in the Greek, the one who conquers, uh, we actually get uh, the word Nike from. You know that one of the most recognizable name brand, that Nike swoosh? The word Nike is actually a Greek word. It means victory. Uh, it refers to the conquest that someone uh, has. That's, that's this word uh, Nike. Uh, it's the same, the verb form of that word is used here in verse uh, 7 of chapter 2 when Jesus says to the one who has victory, to the one who conquers. And in this one word that Jesus uses to describe Christians, we find great instruction to us uh, here this morning. And we hear, in this word, we find uh, a, a description of what a Christian is and how Christians ought to live and what Christians can expect. So just three things here I want to point out from the meaning of this word uh, as we unpack the meaning of it, what a Christian is, how Christians should live, and what Christians can expect. So from this word, the one who conquers, this phrase here, we find, first of all, what a Christian is. What is a Christian? Of course, the New Testament has a variety of words that's uh, used to describe a Christian. One of the most common ones, as we've pointed out in the past, is brothers and sisters. The Bible is often referring to the fact that Christians are defined by their relationships with one another. Another common reference, especially in the, verse, uh, the book of Acts, to Christians is followers of the way. So whenever I find uh, a, a new way in which we have reference to Christians, it always grabs my attention because uh, it tells me this is an important way in which the Lord wants us to understand who we are. And when Jesus calls, uh, he's writing to these people, he calls them conquerors, that teaches us something about what a Christian is. And it teaches us that a Christian is someone who's involved in conflict. The word conquer or victory, it evokes a battle scene. It evokes 
some sort of clash. There's dust and noise and sweat and even blood. And and finally, after the dust has settled, there's a victor standing and there is the, the defeated one lying there in the dust. That's what this word to conquer or to have victory implies. Why would Jesus call Christians ones who conquer as those involved in conflict? Well, I think that this is a very important thing for us to be attentive to this morning because you and I are aware that we face conflict all the time, and it's very easy for us to get confused what kind of conflict we're really in. You experience conflict in your home, among your children, no doubt. If you're married with your spouse, if you have a job, there's conflict at work. If you go to school, there's conflict at school. You all are very aware of conflict we have in our culture, in politics, There are culture wars that have intensified. It seems as though the conflict for Christians has become greater and greater and greater. In fact, just because of the nature of politics right now, it seems that many Christians get the idea that politics is our major conflict. The culture wars, um, people arguing over, over one thing or another, it is, it's, it's in our news. You turn on the radio, it's on the radio. You turn on your news feed, it's on the news feed. This is all the time, and we get this very clear idea that we are involved in conflict. But it's also very easy for us to get confused about what is the true nature of our conflict. Otherwise, we could begin fighting the wrong battles. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6 that we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but there are spiritual, there are spiritual forces that are at work in our lives. And that's one reason why the book of Revelation is so valuable, because in this book, it is a book of revelation, that is, of revealing. The Apostle John, as it were, pulls back the curtain to allow us to see the real conflict that's behind every conflict. The, the, the cosmic proportions of this battle, this clash that is going on that is behind every conflict that we experience. And that's why I had for a scripture reading us consider chapter 12 where John says, and there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels doing battle against the dragon. That is Christ and his followers and the devil and his followers. And this is the true nature of the conflict that we experience. So, Under this heading, what a Christian is, we know that a Christian is someone who's involved in conflict, but we have to look at the sides of the conflict, who's on which side, what are the sides, and then our role in the conflict. The sides of this conflict, what are the sides? Well, the sides are more than political, they're more than just the sides of the the culture wars, they're certainly more than the, the arguments and conflicts you experience in your home, at your work. The sides of this conflict are essentially Satan and his followers and Christ and his people. Let's think about this a little bit because we just read this passage earlier in the service uh, about this, this being referred to as Satan, as the devil, as the deceiver, as the accuser, and he's depicted as a great dragon. On one side of the conflict that we experience, and this is what Jesus wants us to know. He wants us to know about this about ourselves. We're, we're victors. We are conquerors in a particular conflict, but we need to know who's on what side. Now, who is this Satan? Who is this devil that the Bible talks about? Now, unfortunately, we still live in an age in which a lot of people kind of roll their eyes at the whole idea of there being such a being called Satan. Maybe some of you think that's a little bit fantastical, or certainly uh, you rub shoulders with people at work in your school place that may consider this just to be a last vestige of, of medieval thought. But we really ought to know better Uh, that there is such a being as Satan. 
I've referred to this before, but there's a, a man named Andrew Del Banca who wrote this book well, way back in 1995 called The Death of Satan, How Americans Have Lost the Sense of Evil. And he argues that because in our culture, our so-called enlightened culture, we have laughed Satan out of existence, as it were, in doing that, we've lost the resources for explaining why human beings are capable of such horrific evil. And he writes this. this is, he's not a believer. He's not a Christian, by the way, but he has tremendous insight into what we've done to our culture by banishing, as it were, the idea of Satan. He says this, quote, the work of the devil is everywhere, but no one knows where to find him. We live in the most brutal century in human history. He's referring to the 20th century. Uh, but instead of stepping forward to take the credit, Satan has rendered himself invisible. Although the names by which he was once designated, and he goes on to say in the Christian lexicon, he was assigned the name Satan, but Marxism substituted phrases like exploitative classes, psychoanalysis preferred terms like repression and neurosis. Although he's been discredited to one degree or the other, nothing has come to take his place. What he's saying is that we simply cannot explain the depth of evil that we see around us. The cruelty, the misery, the way in which people's minds and, and uh, bodies are bound by the cruelty and, and misery of this world, we, we simply cannot explain it in merely human terms. There is something supernatural, there's something superhuman about the evil that we see in the world, and anybody who tries to laugh Satan away seriously undermines their credibility. And we find the Bible's explanation, the most straightforward and credible explanation that says, behind this conflict... Behind the wars, behind the, the greed, behind the exploitation, there is a force, and he is called Satan, the devil, the accuser, the deceiver. This is what the Bible speaks about our conflict. conflict. Now, we're talking about the con as Christians. Christ calls us victors in this conflict, but we have to know the side of this conflict. On one side is Satan. Yes, he's real, but what are his strategies? We ought to know something about his strategies. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11, Paul says, we are not ignorant of his strategies, of his uh, schemes. Well, what are his schemes? Well, the Bible gives us at least three primary schemes, strategies of the devil. And the first is deception. That's very clear from the passage that we read in Revelation chapter 12. He is a deceiver. Uh, it is Satan's strategy. One of the ways that he seeks to overcome and conquer people is by lying. Now, what is he lying about? Satan has one target, primary target is lies, and that is the character of God. He wants to get people to believe the lie that God is not good and therefore God cannot be trusted. And we, we discovered this again and again when we were in our series, the book of Genesis, when Satan comes to Eve in the form of the serpent, and she says to, uh, and Satan, uh, Eve says to Satan, yeah, we can't eat of this tree, and Satan says, no, God knows that when you eat of that tree, then you're going to be like God's knowing good and evil. And the implication is, the insinuation that the devil wanted Eve to believe was that God really can't be trusted. He's not really good. He's holding something good back from you, and therefore the only choice you have is to disobey him. You see, that's what Satan's trying to get us to do. That's what this arch deceiver, that's what his strategy is. If he could cause us to disbelieve the goodness of God, then we can't trust God, and if we can't trust God, we can't obey God. That's his strategy. You can't trust God with your life. God's going to mess up your life. He's going to require things of you you can't do. His standards are too high. He's aloof. He's distant. He's cruel. He's, he's a malevolent deity. That's the lie of Satan. And when you believe that lie, then automatically you say, well, how can I trust someone that I don't think is good? And if you can't trust someone, you can't obey someone. And so what people are doing then is not obeying God. 
Why? Because they can't trust God. Why? Because they don't believe God to be good. So when people believing that lie of Satan, which everyone naturally tends to believe that lie, live lives of disobedience, that, that brings in Satan's next strategy, which is accusation. Accusation. And we read about this in chapter 12 of Revelation. He is the accuser of the brothers and sisters. How does Satan use accusation in his part of his strategy? Well, here's what he does. And this is, this is we, we find this through the book of Job. Also, when, Job, when Satan comes to God and says, have you considered your, your servant Job? What is he doing? He's trying to get God. He's trying to get God to destroy his own people. He comes to God and says, didn't you create those people to honor you? Didn't you create those people to obey you? Well, look what they're doing. Satan is saying, justice, God, justice demands that you destroy your creation, creatures. Your, your holiness demands that you bring judgment on them. Look what they're doing. They're sinning. They rebelled against you. He is the accuser of the brethren. That is, he's, he's deceived people into thinking God's not good, therefore God cannot be obeyed. And then he brings accusations before God about people. And he also does that to our own consciences. He makes us feel the guilt and the crushing weight of sin, not in a way that drives us to God, but in a way that drives us to religious rituals to try to satisfy our consciences. I was uh, reading recently Shakespeare's King Richard II, where there's this character, Henry Bolingbroke, and he, he's responsible for the death of the king. And near the very last lines in the play, he says, because he feels so guilty, because he was responsible for, for the murder of the king, he says, I'll make a voyage to the Holy Land to wash this blood off from my guilty hands. Pilgrimages, rituals, religious observances, all these sort of things stem from guilty consciences because of the accuser. I find one of the most striking descriptions of this uh, from uh, the, the writer, agnostic writer, Julian Barnes. I've quoted him before. He's not a Christian man. He, he admits in this book, uh, Nothing to be Frightened, if he admits that we have, quote, an underlying desire and need for judgment, when we fall in love, we hope that we shall be finally, truly seen, judged and approved. We long for the comfort and the truth of being fully seen. That would make for a good ending, wouldn't it? And then he gives into despair, the despair we all feel, and imagines God saying, but really, let's be honest with one another. Do you think you deserve eternal life as a reward for your human existence? See, there's this crushing sense of I'm seen, I'm known, and I'm not approved, and Satan is the accuser. And his final tactic is fear. He uses lies to, God, to discredit God's goodness so we can't trust him and thus can't obey him. He uses accusation to bring sins against, before ourselves and against God. And finally, he uses fear. This is very clear from the second chapter of Hebrews in verses 14 and 15, where, where the, the writer refers to Satan as wielding the power of death. He says, through, he says, through fear of death, they were made subject to lifelong slavery. And this is, this is another tactic of Satan. See, one day, you're going you're gonna to stand before God. One day, there is, there is this great vast unknown it's called death who knows what it's going to be aren't you afraid of that aren't you going to live in fear of that this is the power of satan he wields the fear of death over everyone 
Oh, the fear of death is behind so much of what we do. We're trying to escape it. We're trying to extend our lives. We're trying to escape even the, the appearances of aging. I mean, so much of what we're doing is just fear of death. Fear of death. We're dominated by it. Now, if we take all this together, the fact that we're in a conflict, and on one side is Satan, and we know his strategies, his strategies are deceit, accusation, and fear, doesn't this do a pretty good job explaining the way the world is today? I mean, could you find a more accurate depiction of what is driving the, the forces of darkness in our world today? This deceit, accusation, a panicky, angsty-ridden fear of death that causes either people to, like Julian Barnes, write a book called Nothing to be Frightened of, or other people to just immerse themselves in entertainment so that they'll forget about all these things. I mean, this, this is the world that we are in today. John writes in his first epistle that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. So on the one side is Satan. But there's another side, and that is Christ. And, and the, the entire book of Revelation, the book that we're studying right now, is meant to tell us that Jesus wins. And the victory that he has accomplished on the cross is the guarantee of the final victory. That, that's the entire emphasis of the book of Revelation. That's why in verse, if, you, if you're in Revelation uh, chapter 2, if you flip back to verse 1, that's why John recognizes Jesus as, in verse 5, as the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. In other words, in the end, Jesus is going to have all the glory and all the dominion because the, Jesus, through his strategy, smashes the enemy. He, oh, he conquers Satan. See, every one of Satan's devices that we, read, that we read about in Revelation 12 and Hebrews chapter 4, Jesus' death and resurrection destroys it at every turn. How does Jesus destroy the, the strategies of Satan by his death and resurrection? How does Jesus destroy that strategy of lies? Remember, one of the greatest and most effective strategies that Satan has is to get people to believe that God isn't good, therefore God can't be trusted, therefore God can't be obeyed. What does Jesus' death and resurrection do about that lie? Well, Jesus comes to this earth, and out of love, he dies upon the cross, proving to us that God is so good that he gives himself for us. God commends his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, thus smashing apart that strategy of the devil that says God can't be trusted. Oh, he can't be trusted? How could you not trust a God so loving that he's willing to give himself for you as Jesus did on the cross? Yes, the work of the cross demolishes that strategy of the devil. What about the strategy of accusation? You remember, Satan says to God, see those people you made to honor you? See those people you created for your glory? Well, are they honoring you? Are they glorifying you? No, and justice demands that you destroy them. And to that accusation, Christ says, justice has been paid. The judgment has been meted out, and I bore that judgment. I bore the punishment for their sins. Now justice demands that they be forgiven. 
That's why Jesus Christ is called our advocate, our interceder. That's what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and 34, when he says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. See, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ silences the voice of the accuser and shatters that strategy of Satan. And in doing that, Jesus also conquers the final strategy that we talked about, and that is the fear of death. Because if it is true that when you stand before God, you'll meet nothing but condemnation, then you do have something to fear. But because Jesus Christ has died and risen again, he's proven now that through him, death is not the doorway or the the tunnel into some dark, gloomy unknown. Rather, death is a doorway into the full relationship with God forever. And fear of death is gone. See, all their lives, people were in fear of death because the devil was wielding it over them. And now Jesus Christ has taken that weapon right out of his hand and used it against him, and now they fear death no more. You see how Jesus' strategies through his his death and his resurrection, it conquers Satan at every turn. So what's our part in the conflict? Jesus calls his followers victors conquerors well the way to explain and we have to take this little phrase in in verse 7 and all the other letters uh, of of revelation it's not explained here but it's explained later on in revelation that's why we had to go outside this text to get the fuller understanding of what it meant because in chapter 12 and verse 11 it speaks of christians as those who have conquered how by the blood of the lamb all right, what does that even mean? What's, what is the lamb talking about? The, the lamb is a picture of Jesus Christ in his sacrificial death for us. The blood of the lamb refers to the work that Jesus accomplished when he died on the cross and rose again, thus securing our forgiveness from the guilt of our sins and our eternal life. So to conquer by the blood of the lamb means that his victory has become my victory and your victory for trusting in Jesus Christ. But the blood of the Lamb, that is the sacrificial, self-giving death of Jesus Christ and His resurrection is the victory of every believer, every person who trusts in Jesus Christ. Which means this, and again, we're under the the first category of this this little phrase, to him who conquers, shows us what a Christian is. And and let me just state it this way. A Christian is a co-victor a co-victor in Christ's victory over Satan and sin and death. That's what it means to be a Christian. To, To be a Christian means to share in that victory. You didn't win that victory. You didn't, you weren't able to have Uh, You weren't able to die for your own sins. You weren't able to raise yourself from the dead. But Jesus did, and you get to enjoy the benefits of his victory, so you are a co-victor with Christ. That's why Paul in Romans chapter 8 says that through him we are more than conquerors, through him who loved us. And the best way I know to illustrate this is from a a little phrase that was uh, suggested by an ancient Christian Ambrose of Milan uh, who said that it compared the cross of Christ he said the cross of Christ is like his royal chariot the 
uh, he, he said, he writes, Jesus ascended the cross as a victor ascends a triumphal chariot. Imagine, imagine this. The cross, you know what the cross looked like. It's the, I guess there's not one here. So I thought there might be one here. Um, it's a flashback to the other church I used to preach in. There was a cross behind me. Anyway, you know what a cross looks like. It's, it's that pole with a, with a cross beam, and, and it's an instrument of death, of torture. It doesn't look like, it doesn't look like a, a chariot. It doesn't look like something that would defeat the foe. Anyway, Jesus, when Jesus is on the cross, he's the victor. He turns, he turns the very instrument of death into the means of triumph. And it's almost, if you could picture this, here, here Jesus is uh, ascending the cross, and, and the cross then becomes a royal chariot, and he's thundering along toward the enemy, and the enemy has all these hostages down on the ground. And Jesus shouts to them, he says, everyone, anyone, just lift your hand and I'll pull you up into the chariot. And see there, uh, someone who has just been trampled down, defeated by the enemy, uh, bloodied and, and dirty, and all he could do is just lift his hand so that Jesus, the mighty conqueror, reaches down, pulls him into his chariot, and he rides over the enemy. That's what the cross did. And, and that's how you and I are co-victors with Christ. He makes us victors by bringing us into his chariot, as it were. By, by identifying us so closely with him so that now his, his righteousness and his goodness becomes our goodness. His victory becomes our victory. To be a Christian means to be a co-victor with Christ. Now, it could be this morning that that victory has never really seemed real to you or that maybe you haven't understood what Jesus did for you in that vivid of a way. When Jesus wants you to know, believer, I, I want you to be encouraged by this. When Jesus wants to know who you are, he says, you are a victor. To the one who overcomes. In what sense am I a victor? Sometimes I feel like a loser. Oh, if you are identified with Christ, you are a more than conqueror. Because while there may be, while you may have occasional defeats, while there are things that may get you down, your greatest enemy has been defeated because you are one with Christ. You are a victor. You are a conqueror in Christ. Why? Because, because Satan for you has been defeated. Because sin has been trampled underneath the royal chariot. Because the fear of death for you now is gone. Now it could be this morning that, that you've never... You've never seen Jesus in this way. You've never seen Jesus as such a triumphant person. You've always kind of seen him as a, just a historical character or, or a mythical figure. But now in this very moment, Jesus is coming alive to you. And the reason why he's coming alive to you is not because he wasn't alive before. He's always been alive, but because he's making you alive. He's speaking life into you. I mean, this is, this is why Jesus is, is saying over and over again in these letters, let the one who, who has ears hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Is the Spirit of God speaking to you right now about who Jesus is? And if you've never trusted Jesus in this way, if you've never realized that He is your death-conquering Savior, then you need to trust Him. Then you need to like lift up that feeble hand so that Jesus can, can bring you into His royal chariot of victory and be saved this morning. 
You can trust Jesus Christ. I've been praying. I pray every week that someone in our services would trust Jesus Christ for the very first time. Jesus wants you to know that through him you could have the victory. And, and Christians, my Christian friends this morning, Jesus says you're a conqueror. You're a victor. This teaches us what a Christian is. Second, I promise the last two points will not be as long as the first one, okay? I should have told you that at the beginning. You're, you're, you've been worrying about this this entire time. It's going to go a lot faster. But this first point was a, was a big important point. It teaches us about what a Christian is. Second, it teaches us about how a Christian should live. If you look again at verse 7, it says, To the one who conquers, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. We'll talk about that, that promise a little bit later. You see that it's not in past, the past tense. It's not to the one who conquered as if the conflict is over. Neither is it to the one who will conquer as if the conflict has yet been undecided. No. The, the final conflict has been decided. Jesus will win. He will reign forever and ever with those who have trusted Him. Okay, that, that outcome is secure and it has been settled because of the, Jesus' death and resurrection. But, he says, to the one who is conquering, implying that there is still work for us to do. Not to earn our salvation, but to work out our salvation. There is still conflict that we are in. And this fits in with the entire purpose of the book of Revelation, which to, is to assure Christians that although, that because Jesus has won the victory through his death and resurrection, we're still in a conflict. But we can have victory in the present. This is uh, along the lines of what John is, is saying in 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. He says, for everyone born of God overcomes that's the same word translated conquer, overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? The one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Before Jesus went to the cross, he's, he was in the upper room with his disciples, and he's teaching them, and they're feeling really discouraged and really sad because their leader is going to leave them. And he says this, I have said these things to you that in, you, that you, that in me you may have peace. In the world... You will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. What does it mean to live in conflict right now, in the kind of conflict that was described earlier, in the, in the assurance that Jesus has won the victory and will win the final victory? It, it means this, and the best way I could describe it is this way. In every encounter of your life, in every story, as it were, of your life, I'm talking about your family, your work, your time at school, in every encounter that you have, in every conflict, to be a victor, to continue to conquer, means to trust Jesus to be the hero of that encounter, of that story. And for his death and resurrection to be the plot line. It means in every encounter, in every, every conflict you face, trust that Jesus is the hero of that. Let me try to explain to you what this would look like just practically. In, in conflicts, in I'll call them small-scale conflicts, when you forget that Jesus is, 
is the true conqueror. He's the true victor. And he won that victory by giving his life and rising again. I know my tendency, and maybe your tendency is, to see a conflict as an opportunity for me to be the conqueror by proving that I'm right and they're wrong. And for me, victory looks like having won the argument, having come out on top in the, in the conflict. But when you realize that Jesus is the hero and that his strategy, his, the, the, the plot line of his victory with his death and resurrection, it, it frees me from the, from the need to be right in every argument, to come out on top of every conflict. Why? Because, it, because Jesus died and rose again for my sins, it frees me and it frees you in your conflicts to admit where you're wrong. And at the same time, it frees you to speak the truth where this truth needs to be spoken. Why? Because you're not the hero of your story, Jesus is. Every conflict of your life doesn't need to end with you coming out on top. Because Jesus has already come out on top, and he will in the end. And his method was not, was not bullying, domineering, argumentative. His method was love and giving of himself. You see, it... To, to live as a conqueror, even on those small-scale conflicts that, that you and I experience all the time, it means recognizing that Jesus is the hero of every story and letting him be so by trusting in him. It, on another practical level, it could also, living as a conqueror also affects your attitude, your approach to suffering and, and difficulties that you experience. I mean, let's be honest, there are things that we face in our lives that, that make it, that feel like we're on the losing side. Someone gets sick. You take a cut in pay, or you get laid off, or you get transferred, or, or someone distances themselves from you, and it feels like a loss. But because Jesus has secured the final victory because of his death and resurrection and will one day rule as King of kings and Lord of lords and you are attached with him, you know that even every seeming defeat God will use someday in the end for your good and his glory. This is what it means, and I, I referred to this earlier, but in Romans chapter 8 when Paul says he lists all kinds of terrible things that could happen to people and he says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In other words, these things don't disprove God's love and care for you rather they are the means by which he draws you closer to himself and a final way in which this affects us is in our persistence in our christian life our persistence it, it affects our our strategy and conflicts that is an obedience to christ our, our attitude and suffering and and our persistence John was writing to people like you and I who were facing pressure to give up the christian faith and this is a reality that we face today. I was looking recently, in, about, in the year 1990, about 5% of Americans indicated no religious affiliation. They're, they were known as the nuns, not N-U-N-S, N-O-N-E-S, the nuns, those who, have, who claim uh, no, no religion. 1990, 5%. Today, that number is about 35%. And most of those are ones who used to be uh, identified as Christians. Children, teenagers, the pressure upon you to stop living as a conqueror is intense, greater than the pressure I faced, greater than the pressure your parents and grandparents have faced. 
And, and if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, Jesus says to you, keep on. You are a victor in Christ. Don't give up. John writes in John chapter 5, this is, our, this is our victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Keep on believing. Th- this is why Christianity in the early days became such a bewildering force in the Roman Empire, which was and still is considered to be one of the greatest uh, empires of, of all history. How is it that a movement that started with the death of a peasant from the far-flung regions of the Roman Empire, crucified under Pontius Pilate, how is it that a movement such as that could have taken root in that power-dominated environment and is persisting today long after the Roman Empire has ended? How is that possible? One of the early church fathers, Tertullian, said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11 says, says that these are those who conquered by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even to the death. That is, in Jesus they found something more valuable than life itself, because Jesus is the giver of life, and therefore you, you couldn't defeat them, because they didn't fear death. There is, there is a a Christian named Polycarp, who was a very old man, and, and the, the, uh, the persecutors wanted to get him to deny Christ, and they said over and over again, just curse Christ, curse Christ, and he said, Jesus has been faithful to me for these many years. How can I deny the one who's been so faithful to me? The thing that was especially striking to the people in the Roman Empire at that time, yes, the martyrdom of the Christians, their willingness to stare death in the face unflinchingly and say, no, I won't give up on Christ. But actually, another, another major uh, force that, that caused people to see that Christianity was real. No, it wasn't intellectual arguments. It wasn't the, the work of the apologists. It was actually the sexual purity of Christian young people. They didn't understand how in the world Christian young people didn't give into the sexual licentiousness of the culture all around them. But when they instead were pure sexually, people said, there is something real here that's stronger than any argument I've ever heard. Why? Because they were faithful. They were, they were living as conquerors. They were not believing the lies of Satan. You see what's going on here is this is this this phrase, to those who conquer, it teaches us not only what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who's involved in a conflict and a co-victor with Christ. It also teaches us how to live, to live as a victor with Jesus Christ. And finally, I only have time to mention this, is that this is packed with promises. Over and over again, Jesus says, to the one who conquers, I will give. There's a song that says, this is my father's world, Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. The battle is not done, but Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be won. Would you bow your heads? Our Father, thank you for the fact that through Christ we are more than conquerors. I pray that you would give everyone here the courage to stand in, in the, the strength that you give. I pray that none of us would give up. I pray that we would keep on believing. 
keep on being faithful to you who is faithful to us. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.